If you have your Bibles, let's take it to 1 Timothy chapter 4. Before we read um, and before we start the sermon as well, I want to encourage you with this thought that um, what we're doing at church is what we call expository preaching. That means the main point of the text is the main point of the sermon. I'm not trying to be too creative. I just try to show what the Bible says. But there is also something we call expository listening. And what I mean by that is you should also listen and ask, is what I'm hearing what the Bible says? So I encourage you. That's why I want you to have an open Bible, to really see if you see what I see, to lean forward in your soul. There is a difference between passive listening and active listening. And that's what I want to encourage you today. Active. Ask the Lord to speak to you, to show you the glories of his word as well. Well, Let's read together God's word and then we'll dive in. 1 Timothy 4 from verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. It's the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Your word brings true joy. It revives our souls. And Lord, please use this text to fill our hearts with thankfulness and thanksgiving for every good thing you've given us. May we also see the evil of legalism and asceticism, Lord. And may we reject this doctrine as the teachings of demons. Please help us to understand it better and to live it out in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Beloved, I will never forget the one vacation Deborah and I went on. And we saw a sign, one of those triangle warning signs. And all that it said was potholes. And I remember thinking to myself, "Hmm, I've, I've driven over many potholes before. You know, uh, I'll just skip it. I'll just like drive over them uh, like I usually do. And now we, we weren't driving fast. I was driving about 80 kilometers per hour, but we did have a trailer hooked to our car. And then it happened. Suddenly there wasn't potholes. It was a pot road. It was the whole road was a hole. <laughs> the whole road was. It wasn't choose, you know, which side of the road you want to drive on is choose your pothole. Choose the hole you want to go in. And we were four by fouring our way through there. And after we stopped, Deborah and I are looking at each other and thinking, our car is done. Like the tires are gone. Everything is broken. But thankfully, uh, we were, the car was okay. We were okay. We could go on holiday. But I've learned my lesson. When I see that triangle, potholes, I slow down. I'm, like, I'm, not, I'm not taking risks. And, but beloved, in our text, there's another warning like this for us as a church today. It's not about something as temporal as potholes. This sign, this triangle has been put up by the Holy Spirit and says, not potholes are ahead, but apostasy is ahead. People are going to fall away. Be warned. Okay, and we see that in verse 1. Look at verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. So Paul, when he says the Spirit says, he says, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I'm instructing you, Timothy, I'm instructing you, the church, that you should be aware what's going to happen in the end times, in these later times. So, Timothy, don't be caught off guard. Don't be surprised when you see people departing from the faith. 
Now, an obvious question we should ask is this, is when will these later times be? When it says, in the later times, some will depart, when is that? Now, if you've been a careful reader as we read it, Paul quickly slips from the future tense to the present tense. These people that have been departing from the faith were already there in Timothy's time, the false teachers who were forbidding marriage and abstinence from foods. We see the same pattern in 2 Timothy 3 when Paul says, in the end times, people will be lovers of self and they will be lovers of pleasures. And then he says, avoid these people. So immediately switching back to the present tense. So in other words, Timothy, you are in the last days. So when someone says to me, Pastor, do you believe we are in the last days? I say, yes, we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. After Christ died, after he has risen, after his ascension, it was the inauguration of the end times. We've been living in that time ever since. Okay, so what are we to expect from these end times, these last days? And what we will look, look at in these verses are three aspects of the last days that you and I should know about that we won't be caught off guard like I was when I was descending Sheol in the bottles, okay? That we would be aware and know, like, don't be shocked and surprised by them. We will look at there would be a departing, there will be a deceiving, and there will also be a denouncing. That's the three points we will look at together. So first, the first aspect of the end times will be there will be a great departing. Again, verse 1, <clears throat> the Spirit expressly says, in the later times, some will depart from the faith. This is something that you and I should not be surprised about. In these days, there will be people that you have thought were Christians, were truly saved. People among us, people that have talked the talk and seemed to have walked the walk and then to give it all up. To depart from the faith simply means to abandon Jesus or to hold to a false gospel, or to deny a core doctrine of the church, or of the faith, the gospel. So in other words, you will be departing from the faith when you no longer believe Jesus is God. That is leaving. Or that Jesus rose from the dead bodily. If you deny that, you have departed, you've left. It would also just be a departing to just say, I just don't care anymore. I just don't want this Christianity anymore. I want to leave. I... Maybe the love of their sin is just too much or worldly or secular philosophies have overwhelmed God's word. And like Paul would say at the end of his life, he says, Demas in love with this present world has deserted me. There will be people like that. Paul himself didn't know Demas was not a Christian, but it came out when he left him. We must remember this, that when someone departs from the faith, they're not just leaving a religion. They're leaving a person. Look at Galatians 1 verse 6. Um, we've been looking at this verse often, but Paul says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Do you see? So when you embrace a different gospel, a false gospel, you are leaving a person. You're departing from him. Now, to be clear, a true Christian can never be lost. All those whom God has justified, he will also glorify. The good work God began in us, he will complete. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even you. The Bible is clear on that. Yet, I think what Paul is talking about here is those who we have thought, they were, we were so convinced, they really looked like true Christians. But then they just give it up. 
The best example of this is Judas Iscariot. Think of Judas Iscariot. When Jesus says, one of you will betray me, none of the disciples are like, oh, yes, we know who that is, Judas. <laughs> right? No, they were like, Lord, is it me? Will it be me? Will it be me? Because Judas played the act so perfectly. He really looked like he was among them. But no, he wasn't. Beloved, this is something Timothy was to expect. Expect it. And therefore, this is something you should expect. Don't be shocked when it happens. Don't be surprised when many pastors or other Christians turn away from the faith. And say, I no longer believe that this book is inspired by God or that Jesus is the only way to salvation. But then let that remind us and encourage us that no matter how few we are, beloved, don't count numbers in the church. Don't feel, but we are so few. That, that's not the point. Let us remain faithful. Let us keep on clinging to Christ, clinging to the gospel. And let us determine that we will follow Jesus no matter what other people do with Jesus. That we would still say we will follow him. So the spirit is clear. There will be a departing from the faith in the end times. But there's a second aspect of the last days we need to take note of. And that is there will also be a great deceiving. Not just a departing, but a deceiving as well. Look at verse 1 and 2. The Spirit expresses that in a later time, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. These last days will be characterized by false teachers who will be energized by demons. They, the source of their theology will be the devil himself. Remember that Paul prophesied this in Acts 20 and his prophecy came true. In Acts 20 verse 29, he says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. But what Paul is doing is, it's, the main problem isn't really the false teachers. There's something behind that. There's, he's lifting the curtain behind all false religions, all false teaching, all doctrines that's not according to Christ. And says it, its origin is the deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons. From the very beginning, this was the devil's main strategy. Remember, what did he say to Eve? Did God actually say? You see, he begins with doubt, doubting, doubting God's word. And then he denies it. You shall surely not die. The devil was the first liberal theologian. And all those who follow him are in his, in his wake. And we will do well in this point to remember the devil knows the Bible a thousand times better than you do. And therefore, remember what he did with Christ. When he tempted Jesus, he felt no shame. Right? There's no, there's no uh, what, rule, law in love and war. I can't remember how it goes. But the devil did that. He, he quoted scripture to inspire Jesus to sin, to tempt him to sin. He would use the Bible itself to get you to sin. That's scary, Right? And that's why you need to know your own Bibles well. To be able to withstand the devil, the schemes of the devil, when you hear the lie, when you quote scripture, to say, no, that's not what it says. But his tactics are manifold. If he cannot push you into sin, he will add to God's word. He will add rules, legalism, things that, that, that he said, God says you must do this when God never said you should do that. 
And that's just as deadly as licentiousness. That's just as deadly because you will feel self-righteous, thinking you are better than other Christians because you have followed these external rules. So one source of deceiving is the demons, but then, of course, it finds its expression through human teachers. That's what verse 2 shows. Look at what verse 2 says. So these people will devote themselves to deceitful spirits, and then verse 2, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So Jesus said that we will know false teachers, false prophets by their fruit. And like the father, like their father, the devil, they also will be liars. They will be hypocrites. They will be liars par excellence. They will pretend to believe the Bible, pretend to be committed to God's word. But behind the scenes, they have lost faith. That's the meaning behind that little word, insincerity. In the ESV, it says the insincerity of liars. If you have a King James or another translation, it will say the hypocrisy of liars. And that's really where we get our, the Greek word sounds like the English word hypocrisy. It was a word for a mask, actors, people wearing a mask. In other words, they, they were acting, they would wear a mask, they would pretend to be somebody, but then in reality, behind the scenes, they were totally different people. And I think the scary thing about these people is I think it's possible to be lying so often that you believe your own lie. That you start to trust that what you actually say is the truth. L listen to 2 Corinthians 11. It makes the connection between the devil and the false teachers together. It says, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Do you see? How did they get to this point where they would just lie without feeling anything? Well, the rest of verse 2 shows us what happened. Look at verse 2. Whose consciences are seared. That's where it begins. The conscience was silenced over a long period of time. Your conscience is the alarm system of your soul. It goes off when you sin or when you fail and your conscience says to you, that was wrong. You need to stop. You need to change. Now, sometimes your conscience can be oversensitive and it needs to be informed by the word of God, right? You feel guilty over something you shouldn't feel guilty. But even then, it's wise and good to follow conscience. But you know what happens is the alarm bells goes off and we press the snooze button. Say, so, okay, I know, I've, I know I'm wrong. I'll deal with it later. I think I have this one under control. And you do it again, the conscience goes off again, and you press the snooze button again. And before you know it, you've pressed that button so many times, it stops speaking. It's silenced. The next time the alarm goes off, it just loses its force. The word seared is a medical term. It refers to being burned, your skin being burned. And so when it burns the nerves of your skin, it, you lose touch, you lose feeling. And that's the idea. Your conscience has been seared. So if you touch it, there's no feeling left. When they do evil, you don't feel bad anymore. You might, might have lost your temper, temper so many times. The next time it happens, it's, that's just who I am. You've watched so many pornography. The next time, it, just, it doesn't feel so bad anymore. Your conscience is dead. So the slow fade looks like this. You begin to silence your conscience 
You open yourself to the teaching of demons and then you want to influence others to follow you in that same teaching. So beloved, thank God if you have a sensitive, soft conscience. What a gift. What a gift. Your conscience is meant to lead you to Christ. What do we do when our conscience is screaming? How do we deal with that? We go to the cross and we see all our sins nailed to the tree. And we remember that the only way I can have a clean conscience is by the grace of God, the blood of Jesus washing me, cleansing me, not by my works, but by what he has done on that tree for me. And the irony is when you receive that free grace, that free forgiveness, it actually encourages you to stop the hypocritical living, the sinful living. Praise God for that and act. Do something. Reach out for help. Speak to, to myself or another mature Christian that can walk a road with you and help you with your sin struggles. Take pains to have a clear conscience. Don't spare effort to do that. If you don't do that, you are in danger of also departing from the faith if you let your conscience go. Now we might ask, what exactly was these, or were these teachings, these doctrine of demons? Um, we've seen that there will be a departing. They will, we'll see that there will be a deceiving by these demons. And then lastly, which we'll spend also a lot, a lot of time on. So when I say lastly, it's going to be for a while. The last point is that there were also a denouncing. That's, that was the content of these false teachings. Look at verse 3. These teachers are forbidding marriage and require abstinence from foods. They were denouncing marriage and denouncing foods which God created to be enjoyed. Now, I don't know about you. I was expecting pentagrams, like cats being slaughtered, right? Or that, if you ask me, what's the teaching of demons? Like, yes, like Satanism. There you go. But like not eating certain foods. Like, come on, that's a bit over the top, right? Forbidding marriage? If it was something obvious, like, let's sin that grace may abound. Like, uh, false, right? Or Jesus didn't come in the flesh. Wrong. But forbidding marriage and foods. So here, the teaching of demons wasn't to shove us into sin, which is another thing he tries to do, but it was legalism. Adding rules to the Bible, to God's word that he's never added and saying that if you don't follow these, you are unholy, you are not loved by God, you are a subpar Christian or maybe even not a Christian at all. And marriage and food touches on the, one of the two most basic human desires we have, a desire for intimacy and sex and a desire for food, okay, to eat. Looking forward to tonight. <laughs> I hope you are well as well. But the idea is this, that they see these desires as inherently evil, inherently bad. And the background of this was probably the Greek dualism or the Greek um, Gnosticism, an early form of that, that would see all physical things, all earthly pleasures, all physical matter as evil. But only the spiritual as good. Only the soul is good. So there was a strong divide between the physical and the spiritual, the heavenly and the earthly. They, they separated these two things, and therefore the teaching would go something like this. If you want to be really holy, don't marry. 
If you want to be really holy, don't eat. Okay, you have to eat, but don't eat pork, right? Bacon is out. Okay. So probably this was Jewish legalism, dietary laws, and adding the um, abstinence from marriage as well. But let me ask you this, beloved. What is fundamentally wrong with legalism? What is so wrong when we want to add rules which the Bible never makes? I would say there's a twofold problem. The first problem is it behind the scenes views God as stingy. It views God as not the good lavish creator of all physical pleasures. You kind of, when you enjoy those pleasures, you have a low-key sense of guilt. Like, okay, that was so good, it might be idolatry. Right? The, when, yeah, okay, I'll share that a little bit later. Um, so that's the first problem. It sees God as, as, as evil because or he's stingy. He doesn't want us to have joy in his physical world. And the second problem is it sees yourself as fundamentally good. You see yourself as good, and the problem is outside of you. It's just these foods. It's just this marriage. It's just these things that's keeping me away. But it doesn't see the main problem as something in you. You see, that's the problem with legalism and asceticism, that if you go to the cave and you say, I'm going to separate myself from the world. I'm never going to the world again. I'm going to be holy. Guess what you take with you to the cave? The problem. Your heart no pun intended, but you take the heart of the problem with you. The problem is you, your heart. You see, so if the devil can't tempt you with loose living, he will tempt you with man-made rules, which God never made, so that you can just be a cut above the ordinary Christian, just be a bit better. So any system, any theology, any teaching that is dividing Christians between the first class and the second class Christians, like these are the really holy Christians and these are the less holy Christians because they haven't kept these list of rules. You know, you can sense your, I almost said spider sense, but your senses should go off and say, this is the teaching of demons. This is wrong. Now, in different circles, it looks differently. In the charismatic circle, it might look like the baptism of the Spirit. If you are not ba- some Christians have the Spirit and some Christians don't have the Spirit. What, do, what have we done? We've immediately split the Christian world into two groups. Or in the conservative circles, it might be, don't listen to secular music. We only listen to hymns here. Or <laughs> dressing up in a certain way. Only, only suit and tie. Only if you have these set of if you have met these requirements, then you're holy. So how, what is the solution to these, this, this legalism? How may we detect the doctrine of demons when we hear it? What's the best way to deal with it? Well, Paul shows us that the best way to deal with it is to know the truth. It's to know the truth. So the best way to spot a lie is to know the truth. Look at what he says in verse 3, at, immediately in verse 3. They forbid marriage and they require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know what? The truth. You see, yes, the devil can twist the Bible, but it cannot survive in the light of all the Bible. How did Jesus defend himself against the twisting of Scripture? With Scripture. Yes, I hear you, devil, but it is also written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Done deal. Checkmate. That's how we fight these legalism is to know our own Bibles well. When we hear these rules, we have to just ask, where? Can you show me where we have to do these things? Look at how Paul fights these lies in verse 4. 
He says, For everything created by God is good. Where is that going to? To Genesis chapter 1. What did God say at the end of it? When he made all of these physical things, these fleshly things, right? Marriage and sex and food and fellowship. When he made all of that, he said, It is very good. (laughs) This is good. So yes, there were dietary laws in the old covenant, but Christ came, he fulfilled it, and now we are no longer under the law to fulfill, to, to practice those things. Listen to Mark 7, one of the key passages in this regard. Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Do you see? It's, the problem isn't the food out, outside of you. It's the heart in you. But then he says, since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and is expelled. And then Mark puts in brackets or he comments, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus says all foods are clean. Now, true, I just want to say this doesn't mean that you should now just indulge yourself and never fast, right? No, it's good to have wisdom. And there will be some believers, according to Romans 14, that will willingly um, abstain from certain foods for different reasons, and they should not judge the believers who feel they're free to eat, and the stronger believers shouldn't despise those who have maybe a more sensitive conscience. We should live in harmony and love with one another. The principle is Romans 14 verse 17. What does it say? The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking. It's not, that's not what it's about, but a matter of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. How we ought to eat is 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. All of your life should be lived for his glory. Every time you eat, every time you enjoy any gift, any physical pleasure, give God the praise. So foods, it's clear. God has created all things good. Secondly, marriage, the Bible is clear as well. Again, indeed, singleness might be good. Jesus himself was single. Paul commended singleness in 1 Corinthians 7. But there's a holy sanction on marriage. Marriage is good. It should never be looked down upon. Let me ask you this. Who made sex? God did. It wasn't the devil. He didn't think it up like, I found it. Found the way to get them away from God. No, he made it. It was his idea. He made us male and female. And they were both naked and unashamed. Sex with all of its pleasures, all of its intimacy is God's idea. In marriage. (laughs) So that's probably the most important bracket I had to say, right? Otherwise, all of you would be stoning me. But listen to Hebrews 13 verse 4. What does it say? Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. So look at the test. Look at the test in verse 4. In verse 4 it says, Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. That's the test. If it's good, if you can use it lawfully, if you can give thanks for it. Giving thanks to God is the way you glorify God with everything he has given. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 kind of summarizes the two points. It says, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So those two things is the way our physical pleasures are made holy. First, by the word of God. What do we mean there? It means you cannot say thank you for sin. 
You can't say thank you for something God forbid in his word. The word of God must make it holy. So you can imagine a hypothetical situation if someone would say, Lord, I thank you for pornography. No, it's not made holy by the word of God. It is forbidden. It is sinful. Even if someone gives thanks for sin, like food is good, gluttony is sin. Let me use another example. Wine is good, but the Bible says do not get drunk with wine. You see, so even the earthly gifts God has given us, it's good, but it's sanctified by the word of God. We can't just indulge and, and give ourselves over to these things. Because even we, we saw earlier as well, what is one of the qualifications of an elder and a deacon? They must not be addicted to much wine. So wine itself, it's a good gift which can be abused, which can be sin. So it's not just give thanks for it and you are okay. Beloved, even the devil can use this passage. So even be careful of this very verse. The pastor said if you give thanks to it, thanks for it, it's fine. No. It's sanctified by the word of God and prayer. <laughs> we know this. We know this is the way to think about it because it doesn't say everything is good. It says everything created by God is good. Do you see the difference between those two things? All things are not just lawful. All things that God created is good. Because there wasn't just a Genesis 1 and 2. There was also a Genesis chapter 3, a fall. Now we are constantly tempted to take the good gifts God has given us and worship and worship it above the giver. Make an idol out of the good things God has given us. But that's only the first way we should sanctify our earthly pleasures. It's the word of God. What's the second way? In verse 5 it says, by prayer. And I think in context it just means thanksgiving. Because he says it in verse 3 and 4, those who be, uh, um, to be received with thanksgiving in verse 4 as well. Um, nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is the way we sanctify. And that's a good test. Maybe even the word of God says it's okay, but you can't say thank you for God. You're doubting whether this is good for you or not. Abstain. That's a very simple test for many things, right? Think of a dating relationship. Can you give thanks to God for kissing one another right now? And if you're like doubting, like, whoa, I don't think we can. Stop. Okay. Can you give thanks to God for eating the fifth slice of cake? Right? And you're like doubting, Yo, this fifth one is going to kill me. I have kids. Don't eat. Stop. Just say thank you that you already had four slices. You see how it works? It's made holy by thanksgiving. The moment you stop giving thanks, it's unholy. Don't use it anymore. So, beloved, every time... As a positive thing, every breath you have, every time you eat and drink and sleep, every time you enjoy friends and family, enjoy sports, rugby, World Cup tonight, if you look at that, thank God for that. If you, if you stay awake that long, right? If you look at art, if you play video games with your children, it's one of the most, this is one of the most beautiful things to do is when before Jordan and I play video games, we thank God for it. God, thank you that we can play together. Thank you for this good gift you've given us. And we just play 30 minutes and we're done. It's so enjoyable. Every time you eat a waffle baptized with syrup and ice cream, right, you know what I'm talking about. Every time you sing, every time you dance, every time you're with anything that makes you happy of this world, are you thanking God? 
I love this quote from G.K. Uh, G.K. Chesterton. He says, you say grace before meals? All right. I say grace before the concert and the opera, grace before the play and the pantomime, and grace before I open a book, grace before sketching, painting, swimming, fencing, boxing, walking, playing, dancing, and grace before I dip the pen in the ink. That should be our attitude. This is God's world. This is our Father's world. He's lavished it. Creation is thick with his glory. So we should not put God in a box. And what I mean there is not that we should limit what he can do, but I mean we should not put him in a box like God's only present in my quiet times. He's only present when, on a Sunday when we worship him. No, we should. his presence is everywhere with us. Every time we can see a good gift, we can trace it back to the giver and thank him for it. Last verse we'll read together is 6 verse 17. Just turn with me there. 1 Timothy 6, 17. So, so important. It says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to what? To enjoy. Do you believe that? Do you believe God is the kind of God that gives you everything to enjoy? Or do you think he's stingy? He's like, no, he's withholding these good things. I must abandon them all. The opposite is very dangerous. Romans 1.21, what does it say? Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. Do you want to know beyond a doubt why the physical world is good? The Son of God took on flesh. Jesus became a man. Physical. He died on the cross with that body. He rose from the dead with that body. He ascended to heaven with that body. And he is returning with that body. You and I will be in a new heaven, a new earth. Heaven will be full of physical pleasures. We're not going to be angels floating on on clouds playing harps. That's just false. We're going to be in a physical world. And we will forever be able to see Christ. We will be able to hug him. Because he has a body. He will wipe away our tears physically. We will have a physical body and he will have a physical body to do that. Christ forever is the perfect God-man. Beloved, Christ is the bread of life. He's the one you're longing for. Every time you are satisfied with a warm bread, you should trace it back to the bread of life. And Lord, only you can satisfy my heart. Every good gift is like a beam Christ is the sun. Every good gift is like a stream. Christ is the fountain. And so whenever you enjoy a good gift, trace it back to its giver. His burden is light. So in these last days, what can you expect? A departing. People leaving the faith by devoting themselves to deceiving, deceiving spirits and demons. And they will denounce God's good gifts, physical gifts, but we know God has not changed. God is good. We, we will stay. We will worship him. And I pray that you too will join me in worshiping this good king who's given us everything to enjoy. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that we have forgotten this important truth that you are a God who is good given us everything to enjoy 
Forgive us also, Lord, for so often preferring the gifts above the giver, for worshipping your good creation over you, um, forgetting to thank you, forgetting to, to even enjoy the goodness of your creation in moderation. Lord, forgive us also, Lord, for rejecting good gifts when you are good, Lord. Oh, Lord, please uh, fill us with joy, fill us with your thank- with thankfulness. May we learn to trace every gift back to you. Lord, may we know you and love you more because of your goodness in creation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.